This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Dave Green is along for the ride today, and we have a potpourri of topics. Let's go to the movies. Bob Cudmore takes a look at Amsterdam, New York's downtown movie theaters. Before there were downtown movie theaters in Amsterdam, New York, there were opera houses. And I imagine that's the way it was in many other uh, cities in upstate New York and elsewhere. These opera houses in operation in the late 1800s and kind of go into the movie era, offering plays, concerts, even political speeches. But in the early 1900s, when movies were starting to come out, silent motion pictures were projected onto small screens in downtown storefronts. Admission was just five cents, and these simple theaters were called Nickelodeons. Amsterdam historian Hugh Donlan said there was a Nickelodeon, for example, on Market Street called the Theatorium, or Theatorium. It was in operation in 1907, and more Nickelodeons followed. Amsterdam historian Jerry Snyder has done research saying that the Lyceum Theater downtown opened in 1909 in the Schaefer Building on East Main Street. The theater was managed by Joseph Galace of Schenectady. The Lyceum featured vaudeville, which was the popular traveling uh, stage performances of the day, but also the Lyceum featured movies. The facility was renamed the Strand at some point, which was its name in 1941 when photographer John Collier took an iconic picture of pedestrians walking under its marquee on a rainy day. I like that picture so much it's on the cover of my book, Hidden History of the Mohawk Valley. In 1949, the Strand was remodeled by the Gloversville-based Shine Theaters and renamed the Mohawk Theater. According to a 1971 newspaper, the building housing the Mohawk was demolished that year, demolished in 1971. Amsterdam's premier theater was the 1,400-seat Rialto. Schenectady has Proctor's, uh, come to think of it, Utica and Troy had a Proctor's Theater. Albany uh, had the Palace Theater. Amsterdam had the Rialto. It was built by entrepreneur Edward C. Clapp at Market and Grove Streets in 1917. In 1933, the Rialto also became one of the Shine facilities and was known for live, live stage performances by the likes of Jack Benny and, and Burns and Allen. Hugh Donlan, the historian of Amsterdam, wrote that Amsterdam boxer Sailor Baron directed the Rialto Usher Corps. Baron's ring expertise, said Donlan, enabled him to administer fistic anesthesia to potential troublemakers so quietly there was no awareness of the operation by most patrons. Bothersome customers were removed to an alleyway outside the building. There were other movie theaters downtown. The Regent, located on the east side of Market Street, opened in 1914. Once again, the Shine chain ended up owning that facility and remodeled the Regent in 1946, promising that everything was new but the name. 
The last traditional movie theater constructed in downtown Amsterdam opened in 1949, Brandt Corporation's Tryon on East Main Street. The Tryon was built on the site of the McGibbon Block, which had been leveled by a spectacular fire in 1943. The Tryon Theater had sliding seats. Champion, Amsterdam native Kirk Douglas's breakthrough boxing movie in 1949 was the opening attraction. The Line to Sea Champion extended along East Main Street onto Church Street, according to local history fan Sam Fomero. And maybe I did forget, there was at least one other theater called the Orpheum on the west side of Market Street. That would be opposite the Regent. It was known in the 30s and 40s, that's the 1930s and 40s for millennials, for a double-feature Sunday matinees, usually a Western and a B-thriller. There were no bathrooms in the Orpheum, and Mary Riley, whose father was Orpheum operator Tom Shelley, uh, said the regent across the street made its bathrooms available to uh, Orpheum patrons. One other uh, fixture of Amsterdam's uh, movie theaters was a man called Fielding O'Kelly. He lived in Amsterdam, but he was the point man for the Shine Chain. I've mentioned them several times. The the Shine brothers came to Gloversville in the early years of the 20th century. Their premier theater was the Glove, which still exists in uh, downtown Gloversville. But more than the Glove, the Shine Theater owned lots of theaters uh, all over the East Coast, I believe. But they were really uh, heavy in upstate New York. And Fielding O'Kelly was in charge of the Shine Theaters in, let's say, the, um, the Mohawk Valley. The Tryon, the Rialto, the Mohawk, the Regent, the Orpheum, they're all long gone. Having succumbed to multiplex theater competition and downtown urban renewal in the 1960s and 1970s. I'm going to check uh, Dan Weaver's column on movie theaters. He had something I haven't put in my columns on movie theaters, that there was a single screen theater in uh, downtown Amsterdam after the big ones uh, went, uh, maybe a, a smaller theater than the others. And for many years, there was a multi-screen theater at the Amsterdam Downtown Mall. The mall theaters closed and a Route 30 strip mall was remodeled to create the 10-screen Emerald Cinemas. Earlier this year, the owners of the Emerald Cinemas, Joseph Tessero and Bruce Wendell, closed the Emerald Cinemas in Amsterdam. They continue to operate the nine-screen Johnstown Movieplex in the Johnstown, New York Mall. Tessero told the Daily Gazette, there's not enough moviegoers to support 19 screens between Fulton and Montgomery counties. Next on the Historian's Podcast, a Mohawk Valley man was one of the first federal government officials to employ women as clerks. And that man took a number of chances uh, during his life. His name, Francis E. Spinner. And by the way, the, the stories I'm uh, telling here on the Historian's Podcast in this episode uh, come from my history column, which runs every Saturday in the Daily Gazette newspaper. Francis Spinner was a 19th century U.S. treasurer who developed an elaborate signature to prevent currency counterfeiting. 
He also was proud of being one of the first federal officials to hire women to do work previously done by men. Francis Spinner was born in German flats in the western Mohawk Valley in 1802, the oldest of nine children. His father, Reverend John Spinner, had been a German Roman Catholic priest who became a Protestant and married Magdalene Brument. The Spinners came to the United States in 1801, and John Spinner became pastor of two German-speaking Dutch Reformed churches in Herkimer and German Flats. The first big chance that Francis Spinner took was something he really had no control over. In a 1937 church history, Reverend W.N.P. Daly wrote, quote, A week after the child, Francis Spinner, was born, the house burned, and the mother, barefooted, carried her infant through the snow to a neighbor. As a lad, he showed great taste for books, but his father insisted on his learning a trade. So the father apprenticed young Spinner to a confectioner, a candy maker, in Albany. His father moved him to Amsterdam when he found out the young man was not learning how to make candy, but was serving as a salesman and bookkeeper in Albany. Kind of a strict dad, I guess. The youth then was apprenticed to saddle and harness maker David DeForest in Amsterdam. Spinner still loved books, and he showed his love of reading by reading every volume in the Union Library, which was the first organized book collection in Amsterdam. And according to an Amsterdam newspaper, Spinner had a close call when the first Amsterdam-Mohawk River Bridge was under construction in 1821. Spinner was climbing along an unfinished part of the bridge when it began to give way. He jumped to safety as part of the bridge collapsed. Spinner returned to Herkimer County in 1824, where he married Caroline Caswell of Herkimer and became a banker. He also was a major general in the state militia and the sheriff of Herkimer County. He was one of the commissioners involved in construction of the state asylum for the mentally ill in Utica. He got more heavily into politics and ran for and was elected to Congress as a Republican, and he served from 1855 to 1861. That, of course, was President Lincoln's party, and when President Abraham Lincoln took office, he named Spinner the U.S. Treasurer, following a recommendation from Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase. Spinner's elaborate signature, which was used on uh, American currency, became one of the best-known signatures in America. He told the magazine writer that he consciously developed his signature while he was sheriff, asylum commissioner, and banker up in the western Mohawk Valley, but he, he thought that, or his idea was, that since his signature was so elaborate, it was hard for counterfeiters to copy it. And during the Civil War, Spinner became one of the first federal officials to hire women as clerks. The reason? The same reason as Rosie the Riveter. So many men had become soldiers. Some 70 women were hired by Skinner, and he kept them on after the war ended. 
The U.S. Treasury Department has uh, this part of the story on their website. They said the first woman employed at Treasury was Jenny Douglas of Illion, New York. Hmm, kind of close to home for uh, Mr. Spinner. She was hired in 1862, and her job was to cut and trim new greenback currency. Not really a clerk's job, but you know maybe even uh, more unusual at the time. It was, sounds like a sort of factory job. She was trimming the currency. In case you're wondering, women were paid less right from the get-go. Male clerks had a salary of $1,200 annually. According to the U.S. Treasury, women hired by Skinner were paid $900 a year. Spinner said he took great satisfaction in being one of those, quote, instrumental in introducing women to employment in the offices of the government, unquote. In 1875, Skinner resigned as U.S. Treasurer in a dispute with the new Secretary of the Treasury, who would not give Spinner final say over who would serve on his staff. That same year, Spinner ran unsuccessfully for New York State Comptroller, and then, as many people still do when they reach a certain age and they're from upstate New York, and then Spinner relocated to Florida. He moved to Jacksonville, where he died in 1890. He was buried, though, in the Mohawk Cemetery in Mohawk Village, which is a village in Herkimer County. A little confusing up here. We have the town of Mohawk in Montgomery County, but the village of uh, Mohawk in Herkimer County, and it's in the village of Mohawk in Herkimer County that you find Mr. Uh, Spinner's grave, but you can also see a statue of him in the western Mohawk Valley. The women he had hired at Treasury raised $10,000 for a bronze statue of Spinner by sculptor Henry J. Ellicott. The statue was first located at a private gallery in Washington. In 1909, the Daughters of the American Revolution had the statue moved to Myers Park in Herkimer. And on a side note, just about the aftermath of the Civil War, have you seen Henry Louis Gates's latest effort on public uh, television on uh, PBS? It's uh, really an eye-opener. It's an account of Reconstruction, the period after the Civil War. A Fonda minister was the dean of American newspaper journalists in the 19th century. How did that happen? Well, it was an unusual circumstance, it seems to me, But I'm not a minister, and I didn't live in the 19th century, so maybe it wasn't as unusual as it sounds. Before we get into the story itself of that minister, I do want to put in a word for our GoFundMe campaign. Historian's Podcast depends on your donations to keep on the Internet and also our broadcast outlets. You can contribute online. Go to GoFundMe.com forward slash 2019 dot the dot historians and they'll walk you through it we welcome donations of big and small and we've been doing pretty well so far this year but uh, don't want to get overconfident we really could uh, use a donation and if you don't want to do it online you can make out a check to me bob cudmore and send it to 125 horstman drive scotia new york 12302. The story of the minister who spent most of his 92 year life in the Fonda area, who was also a pioneer 
syndicated journalist. The New York Herald interviewed Reverend Washington Frothingham in 1912, two years before he died, calling him the dean of American journalism. Or maybe more to the point, other journalists, other reporters called him the dean of American journalism. Frothingham began contributing columns on current events to newspapers in New York State and other states during the Civil War. He was an advocate for the Union and a supporter of President Abraham Lincoln. Frothingham used pseudonyms to obscure his identity, although several newspapers over the years did stories, I guess you'd say outing, the columnist's real name. He signed his columns as the Hermit of New York, uh, the ones that were printed in the Troy Times and New York Herald, and I believe the New York Times as well. He was Macaulay in the Rochester paper. He was the Rosicrucian in Utica and the Demon of Broadway in Hartford, Connecticut. Over the years, his columns were printed by newspapers in Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston, many other cities, and he earned money with this. I mean, I can't imagine. sounds like a, a bookkeeping nightmare to get paid by all these uh, different newspapers, and maybe some of the money fell through the cracks, but apparently enough of them paid that he kept doing it. And the money he earned was helpful because he wasn't making much, or I, it was hard to determine from what I read about him, It maybe he wasn't even making anything from being the minister, and that the money that he earned from the newspapers, he gave most of that away, according to accounts of his life, uh, to needy people and causes he considered worthwhile. But he ended up having a nice home in, in Fonda. I think he was, uh, when he died, was living in the home that had been built by one of Fonda's early uh, settlers, Jealous Fonda. Washington Frothingham's will provided the funds needed to start the Frothingham Free Library in Fonda. He paid for a bowling alley and a public bath in Fonda and was still swimming there regularly when the Herald interviewed him in 1912. The newspaper asked him about what were then current events, and I got the impression that by 1912, Washington Frothingham wasn't churning out as many uh, newspaper columns as he used to. He told the newspaper he did not favor giving women the right to vote. He didn't favor women's suffrage. He also expressed concern for the younger generation, saying he feared for the future unless young people turned to the Lord, honored the flag, and became good citizens. Where did uh, Washington Frothingham come from? Well, he was born in East Fonda, 1822, died at his home in the village in 1914. His family, he was the third of ten children, moved from Fonda to Johnstown when he was a young child. His mother was a niece of the author Washington Irving, and his father was a judge. Young Frothingham studied at Johnstown Academy, and he wanted to be a writer. To please his father, though, and to help the family, at age 18, Washington Frothingham moved to New York City and worked in a Broadway store. He secured a job with a wholesale grocer named Edwin Morgan. Morgan was later elected governor. After working some time for Morgan, Frothingham and a friend opened their own store. 
And this is my speculation on why Washington Frothingham became uh, a writer, the be- famous around the country. He, you know, he's a country lad, comes from upstate New York, but he he's in the city for a good long period of time as a young man, and he gets to know people in the know and uh, reporters and who knows what else he you know the other people he gets to know and i would imagine he established some contacts at the time that he like that man who became governor that were able to help him uh, getting his uh, columns published in any event in 1850 when he was 28 frothingham felt a call to the ministry he sold his share of the business and prepared for the ministry at Princeton, not too shabby, uh, developing skills as a speaker. His first position was at a Presbyterian church in Gilderland, so now uh, he is moving back upstate. Frothingham opened a Sunday school and what they called a preaching station. I just have an idea. You pull in and there's Frothingham. He'll give you a a sermon if you want. Uh, It was a preaching station at an Albany machine shop. That effort, the Sunday school and the preaching station, led to the founding of an actual church in Albany, West End Presbyterian Church. In 1861, Frothingham was invited back to Fonda to restore the declining Reformed Church there. He succeeded, although his pro-Union and pro-Lincoln political views ran counter to the secessionist views of some church members. Yes, secessionists in uh, upstate New York. In 1862, at age 40, Frothingham married Mary Middlemass, a native of Scotland who was a Sunday school teacher. They had no children. He was called to serve the Tribes Hill Presbyterian Church, where he was pastor for a good long time, retiring in 1905. His wife had died some years before that, and then in 1900, Frothingham married a woman who had been his wife's nurse, Ella Levitt of Tribes Hill, a school teacher and a news correspondent for the Recorder newspaper in Amsterdam. One source said that his first wife's last words were, Take care of Ella. Washington Frothingham was author of several books, haven't even mentioned those, including these long histories of Montgomery and Fulton counties, a great uh, resource uh, for historians. And from his New York City days and then his days uh, writing these columns, He was very friendly with newspaper men and other writers, including Horace Greeley and William Cullen Bryant. Frothingham had an operation at Albany Med uh, in the early years of the 20th century. He was said to have been one of the oldest people to have been operated on successfully using ether as uh, anesthesia. His age was the remarkable thing. I guess ether had been in use for some time. He lived several years after the operation, but Washington Frothingham died in October of 1914, a couple of weeks after suffering a paralyzing stroke. The funeral was held at Fonda Reformed Church, and his body was cremated in Troy. There's a memorial to him in Fonda's Cognawaga Cemetery. A man from the Montgomery County town of Root became a surgeon in the Civil War and went on to be a prominent doctor in Albany. Albert Vanderveer, 
born in the Montgomery County town of Root in 1841, became a surgeon in the Civil War, then had a long career as a prominent physician and medical school professor in Albany. He was the son of Abraham Vanderveer and Sarah Martin. He attended Union Free School in Palatine, Canajahari Academy, and studied medicine initially with a physician who also lived en route in the hamlet of Currytown, Dr. Simeon Snow, and Vanderveer married Margaret Snow in 1867. She was Dr. Snow's daughter. Vanderveer was studying medicine in Albany in 1861 when he volunteered to join other students and physicians at a military hospital treating the wounded from Civil War battles near Richmond, Virginia. He enlisted in the Union Army, earned his medical degree at what became George Washington University in the nation's capital, and was a surgeon with the 66th Regiment of the New York Volunteers, taking part in most of their major battles starting in 1864. He also was on hand for Robert E. Lee's surrender to Union General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox, Virginia, in 1865. After the war, he got married, and then uh, maybe a few years later, became a professor of anatomy at Albany Medical College, then a professor of surgery, and he became dean of the college in 1896. Additionally, he served in the Albany Hospital as surgeon-in-chief and senior consulting surgeon. He was credited with being the first surgeon to successfully remove a thyroid gland. He wrote professional articles on the topic of abdominal surgery, mostly, and he began publication of Albany Medical Annals. He was president of medical societies, both locally and at least once even nationally, the American Medical Association. He went to international medical conferences. He built a summer home in 1907 at Big Moose Lake in the Adirondacks, lived to enjoy it for 22 years. His wife Margaret died in 1924 at their winter home in Seabreeze, Florida. Their Albany residence was on Eagle Street. The Vanderveers had six children. Three of them survived to be adults, and all three, Edgar, James, and Albert, became doctors. Two grandsons also became physicians. And Vanderveer had a career in public service. He served on the State Board of Regents, which oversees education for 30 years or so. He was vice chancellor in 1915 when he resigned his post as surgery professor at Albany Medical College. He was named Regents Chancellor in 1921, but resigned the next year because of poor hearing. He had an interest in history, especially his Dutch ancestry. Albert Vanderveer died at age 88 at his home on Eagle Street in Albany in 1929. His three sons were attending to him. He was buried at Albany Rural Cemetery. Franklin D. Roosevelt was governor at the time, and he commented, quote, The cause of health improvement throughout the state has lost one of its greatest exponents and friends. The Albany uh, Evening News wrote about Albert Vanderveer, quote, Albany knew his good works and it knew him 
as a kindly man, always interested in his fellow men, always interested in his city, his patients loved him. Albert Vanderveer, a surgeon in the Civil War and a prominent doctor in Albany, New York. I'm Bob Cudmore, and you've been listening to The Historian's Podcast.